0: Hey, it's Adam with Mile High Stash, the podcast that asks what five albums you would take to a remote Colorado cabin in the event of a zombie apocalypse. Um, I wanted to tell you that I now have a little donation button at milehighstash.com. If you want to support the podcast with a few bucks, so I can make it sound better, and you know, just keep it going every Monday. Uh, you can also Venmo me at Adam Ice Nine. More importantly, Dry January is over. Welcome to Wet February. I made it through thirty sober days, and here I am, about to grab um, a glass of wine after our first episode of February. Um, we've got my favorite guitar player of all time. Anyone who knows me has heard me um, geek out about Adrian Ballou, and now I get to geek out with him. This guy played on Paul Simon's Graceland. He played on The Downward Spiral by Nine Inch Nails. Uh, <laughs> most guitar players want to play the blues or a lot of notes and basically scream at the audience, look, I'm a really good musician. Adrian Ballou gets a shot at a guitar solo and and might try to sound like a bird or an elephant. And maybe a lot of people are like me in that when they were teenagers discovering what music they liked, they also discovered that Adrian Ballou played on most of it, whether it was David Bowie or Frank Zappa or King Crimson. But what you might know him from the most is what I consider the peak of the Talking Heads, which is Remain in Light. It's um, orchestral funk. It's um, spiritual, almost, and it's just weird as fuck. Uh, Once in a Lifetime was the hit, you know, but there was uh, John Hassel's avant-garde horn, Brian Eno's literal and metaphorical voice all over it. And most importantly, the absolutely out of the box lead guitar by Adrian um who was discovered actually just a few years before Remain in Light by Frank Zappa while playing in a Nashville bar. Adrian and I connected to talk about Remain in Light because he and Jerry Harrison just put together a band that's playing Remain in Light and other Talking Head stuff on an extensive uh, tour that starts in Denver on February 16th and then hits the the Bolter Theater the next night, February 17th, and keeps on going, and it'll probably get extended much longer. But uh, before I share my chat uh, with Adrian Ballou, um, I want to make sure every single person listening to this puts on Marquee Moon by television sometime soon. In honor of the late, great Tom Berlain, who just passed away, if you grew up listening to rock and roll and reading William Blake or William Burroughs or Rambo, if you love the Velvet Underground and beat poetry, but also the big guitar jams of the Allman Brothers, you will love Marquee Moon. It it changed my life when I was 15 or 16. And uh, I'm sorry, not sorry, sorry, not sorry to all my bandmates and girlfriends over the years who I essentially tied down and made listen to all 11 minutes of Mark Moon in silence. (laughs) Anyway, we've got a little warmer weather in Boulder right now. Maybe it's up to 30 degrees from 3 degrees, and I'm excited to get out on my bike again and play 105.5, the Colorado Sound, on my little Bluetooth speaker while I ride up The Canyons, Uh, you never know what you'll hear on the Colorado Sound, but it's always good. And I'm grateful for their support of Mile High Stash. You know what else is good? Monkton Guitars in Broomfield, right between Boulder and Denver. Whether you want to shine like the Mississippi Delta on a national guitar from the 1930s or grab something brand new, brand new Les Paul or something, Monkton has got it all. Here's my chat with Adrian Ballou, including his very own Mile High Stash, after a few words about Moncton. Moncton Guitars has been selling vintage guitars, amps, and effects for 31 years, and now has a brick-and-mortar shop conveniently located between Denver and Boulder, just off Highway 36 in Broomfield. In addition to a fine selection of vintage and used gear, Moncton Guitars also carries new equipment from major brands like Epiphone, Guild, and Marshall, along with a great selection of Colorado-built instruments. Monkton also offers accessories, lessons, and inexpensive but expert repairs and setups. So check out MonktonGuitars.com today for more info or just stop by. That's M-O-N-K-T-O-N Guitars in Broomfield. How's it going, Adrian? Good, Adam. How are you? Oh, not bad. I'm just sitting here on a cold morning in Boulder, Colorado.
1: Well, I'm headed your way eventually.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, one of the things I wanted to ask is your history with Colorado and if you have any, you know, certain memories of Denver or Boulder.
1: Oh, lots of memories there. We've played there so many different times in a lot of different places over the years and uh, I always really, really enjoy it. I have friends there. I was stuck in a blizzard there once for five days with King Crimson. Uh, you know, I, I have a yeah, a very long lifetime worth of uh, of experiences with uh, with Colorado. Beautiful yeah. place. I love it. Really happy to come back.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you so much for talking with me. And um, one of the things I've been thinking of is what the uh, the sixteen year old me would think about talking with anybody who played on uh, Remain in Light, because it's one of those albums where lots of young people, I think, have someone older in their life who kind of maybe is is uh, into drugs or just into good music, and they turn them on to uh, uh, Remain in Light. Um, I wanted to ask, um, you know, just as essentially, when do you remember first uh, hearing the Talking Heads and then also starting a, a relationship with them?
1: I first heard them here in Nashville, the first time I lived here for a couple of years. I was playing in a band called Sweetheart, and that's the band that Frank Zappa found me in, mm-hmm. right around the same exact time that uh, they played here. And um, I heard him play at the exit end. I couldn't get in the door because it was so crowded, mm-hmm. so I just stood around and listened through the door. Yeah. And. Uh, and, you know, I didn't talk to him or anything. Um, I just wanted to know all, what all the commotion was about because there was all this noise uh, about this new new wave music. Um, I can't even remember what they did. It, it just, it, I just remember they sounded kind of thin mm. to me, but maybe that's because I wasn't really even in the club. Next thing, though, um, I played a, f- a year or two later with David Bowie at madison square gardens and they were in the front row mm-hmm. and i think that's how they first heard me then they went on a tour in support of fear of music the record just before remain in light mm-hmm. uh... at that time i lived in illinois they played three shows in illinois i went to all three of them and um naturally they they brought me backstage and wanted to talk to me and and stuff so on the third show which was in Macomb, illinois They asked me to come out and play their encore, which was Psycho Killer. And I said, you know, well, of course I know the song, but I I don't know the chords or anything. And they said, that's okay. Just just freak out at the end like you do.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: (laughs) And uh, so that got that ball rolling. Then the next thing that happened is the next time I saw them, I was in New York City uh, playing one of my own shows. They came to the show. Well, Jerry Harrison, David Byrne, and... Brian Eno came to the show, and after the show, they cornered me in the stairwell and said, hey, we're making a record, could you please play on it? And I said, well, I'm supposed to drive back to Illinois tomorrow, and they said, could you please just come in for maybe even tomorrow? And uh, I said, absolutely. So I went over and did everything that I did on Remain in Light was done in that one day. One day. And at that point in time... They had nothing done except sort of bass and drum tracks and a little bit of, you know, a rhythm guitar here or something there. No chord changes. Every song was in one key. And uh, they said, well, what we'd like you to do is play things, and we're going to write the songs around the places that you play. So I remember one of the things that happened as I was Setting up my gear and going through my sounds, I could see through the control room window that they were jumping up and down with joy. So <laughs> I could tell they were enjoying what I, what I had to offer before I even played. And then uh, they informed me, okay, go in on this song, put on your headphones, and just wait around until you think a guitar solo should, should be in the song. And what, like we said, we're going to write around that. So that's what I did. I played a guitar solo after about two minutes or so. And they went nuts over it. I could see them. So I thought, okay, that went pretty well. I guess I'll play another one. Mm-hmm. So I waited a little bit more and played a second one, and that became the uh, song, "The Great Curve."
0: Yeah, and that almost—that's
1: how the whole record went, actually. Because <laughs> as I said, there there was no singing, no landmarks of any kind.
0: Yeah, and that almost sounds like the experience that I've heard you describe about going in the studio with Bowie and, and Eno and kind of warming up, almost, and them saying, "Well, that was great."
1: Well, kind of yeah that's that's kind of Eno's thing, you know mm-hmm. he loves to capture uh he loves two things he loves to put you in a position that is is maybe somewhat awkward mm-hmm. <laughs> to take you out of your comfort zone, and then he loves to capture what you're doing, you know when you're not even thinking that you're doing it, <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: And it's always resulted in the three or four times I've worked with him in really good stuff. That's, that's one of the things that makes him a good conceptualist and
0: producer. And have you used his oblique strategies in the, in the studio?
1: We pulled them out one day when mm-hmm. we were making a Lodger in Lake Geneva, Switzerland, mm-hmm. and we just had a few laughs with it. Yeah. <laughs> no, one, no one took it seriously. You know, because some of it was just kind of funny, like, you know, I can't remember, but it was sort of like play something purple or yeah, or something.
0: <laughs> yeah. Play something upside the, uh, down.
1: Yeah, mm-hmm. right. It was all just things that make you try to think out of the box. But yeah. frankly, none of us in that room needed that. Not Brian, not David, and not me.
0: Yeah. Um, how did you get this band together to do this Remain in Light tour?
1: Jerry and I had talked for several years about trying to do something to... Uh, revisit the, the 1980 Rome show that uh, is on YouTube. So many people mm-hmm. love that show. It's incredible. And I, bo- both of us felt like it was really a good time to to bring out that kind of music again because mm-hmm. of the, the way the world is. Uh, of course, we couldn't figure out how to actually do that. It was, seemed so daunting. But then he produced a band called Turquoise, Oh, yeah. And Turquoise was started 10 years ago based around Talking Heads. That was their favorite music. So they were, uh, you know, a big band, and they could cover all the material. Um, So Jerry called me finally and said, you know, I, I think I have a band here that was perfect for this. The next thing that happened is a few months later, they flew into Nashville. They played in Nashville, I'm sorry, and Jerry flew into Nashville. And he and I went to their show. They played three songs, and I looked at Jerry and said, you're right, this is perfect, let's mm-hmm. do this. So that's how it started. The, the fact that we didn't have to, to put together a band, it was already there, and it was a band that played together for 10 years.
0: Some people listen to uh, Stop Making Sense or watch the movie and say that's, uh, you know, that, that's the height of Talking Heads. But for me, that concert in Rome as well as um, you know, the album, of the name of this band is Talking Heads. To me, that's the peak of Talking Heads. And
1: I have a lot of people say to me that mm-hmm. that's the peak. So yeah. I guess it depends on when you came into the picture. Yeah. Um, I don't know the movie. I, I, not, not being in the band and already being in King Crimson, yeah. I didn't really even have time or interest in, in watching that. Uh, I had moved on. Yeah. And when you do you have to focus on what you're doing. But I always felt like and, and in retrospect I still feel that Remain in Light was so unique and the band was really that extended ten piece band mm-hmm. was unlike anything they've done since or before and it's very unique, you know. I mean it's a big it's a big rhythmic, pumping, happy, joyful sound. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And uh, not many bands can do that. So, yeah, I, I agree with those, those people who think that that was the highlight. And, of course, both sides of the band, the early, the early four-piece band that I heard you know, in 1977 in Nashville and the, um, the full-on band that, that we did, the 10-piece, are both represented on the name of this band as Talking Hedge, which mm-hmm. I think makes it a profound record you can see the beginning and where the band eventually made it to.
0: Yeah. Um, it's very cool that there are, you know, versions of Stay Hungry and Psycho Killer without you and then versions with you.
1: Yeah. Um, well, the songs that they had already done, you know, it was, was for me, it was a little, I won't say difficult, but I felt a little funny trying to play much in them.
0: Mm.
1: I, I like things, uh, to be what they're supposed to be but uh naturally the places that I had been a part of I I felt really very very comfortable with and I really think that it was a great marriage uh, honestly I think I was what the band lacked if they lacked anything they needed someone who could make a lot of sounds and colors and solos and things and uh they didn't have that and another voice right but, I'm, of course, they they did fine without me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> One thing that I feel is not talked about enough, actually, is is that something like Cities on Fear of Music actually had a very cool guitar freak out on it. And and so I'm, I'm wondering whether you and David and Jerry maybe sat down and had a conversation of, well, this is what we've tried to do, and, and now we want you to take it to the... The next level, something like that.
1: Um, if I recall, that song was really something that David did, and and as I say, I, I was never really into trying to imitate mm-hmm. someone else's thing—not David's vocals nor guitar playing. So, I mean, they just sort of naturally handed it over to me. Here, do what you want to do, and I, um, I, you know, I, I try really hard in this in this situation just to present the music in its real form without, without, you know, trying to sound like someone else or without Mm. taking it too far from what it originally was. But yeah, I, I think that, you know, I think David would be one of the people who would say, you know, that some of my influence rubbed off to his playing at some point.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So (laughs) the theme of these interviews (laughs) that I do, you know, it, um is of of course to talk about your project and your history you know but also we have this recurring um it, uh, it's kind of a spin on the desert island uh, thing and it's uh, imagine yourself that there's a blizzard as as um you might remember um in Colorado and you're stuck in a cabin in the mountains and there might even be a zombie apocalypse and so the question is what five albums would you want in that situation.
1: Well, uh first of all I'd have to ask a question, do <laughs> I still have electricity so I can play a record?
0: <laughs> well, what you have is is, you know, plenty of food and water and then you have a crank-powered Victrola so you can only bring vinyl albums and <laughs> it's kind of like chopping firewood, you know. You got to crank up the <laughs> Victrola.
1: Well, uh, well, yeah, that's a very that's a very interesting one I think. It's better than Being on a a deserted island, because as I've always kind of pointed out, well, there probably wouldn't be electricity. So I was just joking about that. But being (laughs) in a cabin in Colorado in the snow sounds actually pretty good. I was in a blizzard in Denver for five days once. Uh, King Crimson was playing there, and we were supposed to open for a string cheese incident. And in fact, uh, a blizzard hit while we were there, and we were stuck in the hotel for five days. Uh-huh. It was kind of fun, and it was also kind of, you know, you know weary, wearisome after a while, because they were starting to run out of food. Yeah. So I'm in the cabin, and I've got my Victrola. And actually, I might even play around with it a little bit and make the records go a little slower <laughs> or a little faster or whatever. But I would certainly start with my all-time favorite record, I think, influenced me the most of any, and that would be Revolver mm. by the Beatles. Of course, I could fill the entire cabin with Beatle records and nothing but, but I'm just going to choose that one. I'm going to go back to things that really influenced me when I was young. Um, Another record would be Jimi Hendrix. First record, although all three of them would fit the bill, and that's called Are You Experienced? (laughs) Uh, I'm a huge Kinks fan, and (laughs) I mean, Ray Davies has written 500 songs, so it's hard to choose, but. One record I listened to a lot when I was maybe twenty or twenty-one was called uh, "Something Else." Yeah, yeah. And it has a couple of my favorite cuts on there, like uh, "Lazy Old Sun" and "Waterloo Sunset," things like that. Um, what the heck, I'll throw in Remain in Light just to nice. remind
0: myself. <laughs> <laughs> How great it is.
1: <laughs> and I think, you know, I would have to at least have something of my own from my pretty vast catalog. And I thought about it, and I I decided to choose one that has a lot of variables in it. It's not one style, and uh, and it's a pretty long record, so that would be called Up Zop to Wa."
0: That's a great record. I got that actually on vinyl. So if I if I had to take five records, maybe I'd, I'd throw that on there too. Actually, well,
1: if you like my stuff, it represents yeah. me pretty well. Although, yeah. you just, as you know, through my solo work, twenty-five records, nothing in particular is exactly the same. I, right. I didn't stay in one place, and I probably never will. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Um, you also made an album with Les Claypool. I think it was called Ampersand. Is that correct?
1: It wasn't an album. I had Les Claypool and Danny Carey from Tool yes. yeah. play on five songs of mine that I was making. Um, three of them began, ended up on the Side 1 record, and two of them, the other two, ended up on the Side 3 record. I made mm. four records called Side 1, 2, 3, and 4. Okay. And uh yeah it was fantastic um that that was a, an incredible trio. Yeah. So we had a week together at uh in San Francisco at les's Studio. Mm-hmm. And we had a great time. I love both of those guys very much and we just had a we had a really a great time. And uh now of course it was just released yesterday. I just first time I heard about it mm-hmm. too. That uh, we are playing, I think, eleven shows in June with Les Claypool, his Frog Brigade, and yeah. uh, and Sean Lennon is part of that as well.
0: Yeah, and I'm. I was going to ask whether there's going to be collaboration on stage during this tour.
1: If they don't ask me to play and Genji, I'm <laughs> going to be mad. Yeah. <laughs> Because I know they already play that one, and mm-hmm. I actually talked to Sean Lennon about it. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I don't know why they picked that one, but I knew that Les has always been a fan of that particular King Crimson era, that, you know, the 1981 mm-hmm. through 84 quartet. You know, I met him a lot of times even before we played together, and he would, inevitably, it would be at a King Crimson concert or yeah. one of my own. So I, I know that he's often said how influenced um Primus was by that music so yeah I would love to do that and anything more I did sit in with Primus once at the um, Bonnaroo Festival here in Tennessee 30 or 40,000 people standing there in the rain and I played uh, three songs with them we played uh, one of mine Lone Rhino we played Thala and Gingy and we played one of theirs
0: yeah I was going to ask you loads of fun yeah I mean I, (laughs) I really hope that that Collaboration. Um, I hope it's not just that one song. I hope it's a lot of songs. That would that would be wonderful.
1: Well, we'll see what they decide they want to do, and uh, whatever they they ask me to do, I'm going to try to do it. Yeah, uh, that's for sure. I'll be there, and and uh, it'll just be a great time. So those shows will even more be more special because you know that's a pretty good billing, and I'm really uh, excited about it.
0: Yeah, the question that I want to ask the most is when I was growing up in Pittsburgh and getting into music as a kid, it seemed like every artist that I fell in love with, Frank Zappa, David Bowie, King Crimson, Talking Heads, all of a sudden I would learn, oh, Adrian Ballou played with them. So he must have been pretty cool. So um, there's nobody like you, and, and people seem to have wanted you on their albums because your guitar playing is so unique but the question i have is when did you decide to not just play blues-based solos like everybody else and did you did you actually have pushback at first maybe in some bands you were in
1: no no one pushed back about it i don't think anyone much noticed really at first Mm -hmm. but we laughed about some of the things i was trying to do (laughs) Well, uh, when I was in uh, the band called Sweetheart here in Nashville, I lived here in, um, I think, 75, 76, and 77. And I was in that band, and that's the band that Frank Zappa came in one night and heard. Mm-hmm. And that's how uh, my life changed in one night. Uh, but in that band, I had started at that point figuring out, well, I know how to play like a lot of other players I've learned from. You know, I did. I did good imitations of Hendrix and Jeff Beck. I could play a little Chet Atkins or this or that Beatles of course, many other guitar players. And I decided, well now I know how to do that, what what do I do that mm-hmm. will you know make me uh stand out on my own? How can I have my own little part of the, the giant universe of guitar? And I I noticed that I had a penchant for making the guitar do sounds. So one of the first one I used in songs that we would play, of course we were playing, you know, in bars, so we would play um you know, cover songs and I'd be playing a solo solo and all of a sudden I'd go at the end of it wah, wah, like a car horn. <laughs> <laughs> or I'd make some seagull sounds or something and and uh, you know, I I noticed that people got a kick out of it. So I I thought, well, I'm going to continue just trying to make the guitar sound like other things. No one else much seemed interested in that. Mm-hmm. Um, in general, you know, I love guitar playing and I love guitarists. But in general, we're we're most of them are pretty conservative bunch. To be honest, they they like to sound like their favorite guy and right. have their favorite guy's guitar play guitar. You know, a model and uh, not a lot of us are really intent on taking it further. And so th- that's why uh, I love people like like uh, Jeff Becker, Jimi Hendrix, or people like that, Steve Vai, whatever. Yeah. Robert Fripp. I'll put him in there, of course.
0: Yeah. Well, on the same um, spin on that, um, in a way, have you ever seen a guitar player and said, oh gosh, he's trying to sound like me?
1: Uh, no, I have not. Uh, I've had a lot of people tell me that I should listen to this or listen to that, and the guitar player has taken something from me. Or, yeah. you know, even if it was outright, you know, obvious, which I've never heard that either, uh-huh. I would only be honored by that. I mean, yeah. you know, there's nothing wrong with that. You um, you need to learn from people when you start, and that's your inspiration. And mm-hmm. I certainly have a lot of things I've learned that still mean something to me, and sometimes they come through my influences in something that I'm doing. I don't find anything wrong with that at all. I would be honored.
0: I was honored to chat with Adrian Ballou, that's for sure. Check out his upcoming Remain in Light tour with Jerry Harrison and company. Thanks to Moncton Guitars for sponsoring. And thanks to you for listening. Um, I'll see you next Monday. As usual for another Mile High stash this time with the great tattoo artist Phil Bartel of Rising Tide and then a special Tuesday holiday Valentine's Day episode featuring Nick Irata of Devotchka because what's more romantic on Valentine's Day or any day than Devotchka really One more thing I don't want to forget to say how honored I am to have the Mile High Stash theme music be uh, provided by my friend and bandmate and partner in crime, Clay Rose of Gasoline Lollipops. Um, That is me on drums Um, uh, during the intro and outro music, which is Love is Free and Montreal, but these are Clay's songs, and Clay's singing them, writing them, and living them, so I thank him. Clay and I are playing a bunch of duo shows this month in Colorado. Sunday, February 5th at Eldora. Friday, February 11th at Southern Sun in Boulder. And then Friday, February 24th at the Jamestown Mercantile. I hope to never have to say February that many times again.
1: I'm old-fashioned, I just don't share your passion For ever-changing eternal twilight Go on and give oblivion a shot Go on and fade to gray if you got to Maybe you'll do better without God And maybe I'll do better without you